All right, welcome to episode seven of Hagen's Alley Books podcast. Um, today I have on Kurt Collada from Hardcore Gaming 101. Go ahead. Hello. Man. Good morning. <laughs> and we were just talking as soon as we started, um, started, you know, over here uh, just chatting, and we were talking about like book distribution. I'm like, I need to record. Let's let's hit record. So done. All right, let's continue. <laughs> <laughs> just reiterate what we were just talking about. This, no, we don't have to reiterate. Just <laughs> this is how um I just shoot the shit with with buddies on on the podcast, so it's it's really just awesome. But yeah, we were just I, I was mentioning basically just to recap um how Barnes and Noble is so crazy to get into, and I actually had the East Coast distributor interested in carrying my books, yet the whole process is so convoluted that they haven't even reached back to me in over seven months. <laughs> And you were saying you worked for Borders, so oh yeah, back back when Borders was still around. Um, I mean, they were a good store, but uh, the way they were run in different ways was very stupid. Although this is not particularly unstandard for the way magazines work, well, where yeah. they would just get uh, you know everything in at the beginning of the month or whenever they're supposed to come in, and they would have an expiration date that was marked on there. Yeah. And then after that date, we were supposed to pull them, strip the the covers, and they're basically like destroyed. Which is ridiculous to me. It's like such a waste. Like, it was also waste for us because, like, in theory, like, if we ripped those up, they were just thrown in the garbage. Like, we weren't even allowed to take them ourselves. Even though, like, if we had a, a cool supervisor, he would let us. Um, but they took that seriously for, I mean, I'm sure there's some contractual reason, but from our perspective, it seemed pretty stupid. Well, and especially from, like, you and I, it's like, it's not cheap to print books or magazines and things and it's like why wouldn't Absolutely they just not. why wouldn't they just you know i don't know put them aside and contact whomever distributed it and say hey do you want to pay to get it back and i would me being the you know the, the writer like yes please <laughs> yeah i mean a lot of those companies are so big that they they probably don't have anything to do with them you know it's like it's just backstock they're not gonna care they're probably just throw them in the garbage anyway but for smaller companies like you know they might want to still sell them in the store like those magazines are just basically just used as disposable but if you look at some place you know like retro gamer magazine they still sell their back issues on their store which is what well, um exactly. for the kind of stuff we do that would you know, people would be interested in that. And that's it's not like, just news that expires. Yeah, and it's something like you mentioned with Martin Alessi, who had Little Player in Barnes and Noble, and they were throwing away his books. And it's like, well, the date is arbitrary because it's looking at games, and that's going to last forever. It doesn't have to be pulled in a certain date. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Like it doesn't matter if it's outdated. Who cares? Especially like retro gamer. It's like you're talking about the freaking Sega Master System or something. Like, like that's going to next month be out of date. Yeah. <laughs> like no, absolutely not. And I mean, it might be a different story with us since ours wouldn't have a date on it. It would just have a shelf life, I guess, is how it works over there. But either way, though, it's it's one of those things where I don't like that they just dispose. Yeah, books work uh, worked a little bit differently. Is that they would have uh, they would also have a shelf life that was not determined by anybody that we knew of, like on our end. Yeah. Uh, and at a certain point, they would just be like, "Okay, we need to clear up shelf space." If they're, you know, they would just have people pull them and then send them back to the distributor, and I guess they would get some sort of credit back for it. It's crazy though. So at least so you know the books weren't really destroyed uh, for the most part, but That's it was still, good. yeah, yeah. It's just one of those things where like you were saying before we record uh europe is so much more fluid when it comes to those types of publishing and it's really crazy how you know the u.s is just basically five to ten years behind 
the power curve. Well, uh, like, well, well, a couple of the hardcore gaming one of books were picked up in Spain uh, by a company called Game Press. Oh, and yeah. when I was over there for the summer, you know, I met with them and they sort of showed me what the market was like over there. And there's like four publishers, including them over there, that publish that sort of stuff. So in addition to doing mine, they have a um, they have their own books that they also do. And they, they translate a couple of other ones uh, from English. There's another company called, uh, I think, Heroes de Papel. And they did a Kickstarter a little while ago to have some of their books re- released in English. Um, I know they succeeded, but I don't remember which ones. Because uh, I think they did a book on Dark Souls. They did a book on Nier. Uh, Final Fantasy VII? Was that they one did a book on uh, Final They had like the main three Final Fantasies. Like, I don't yeah. know what their stage is. Because if they released it outside the Kickstarter, I would probably pick up at least one of them just to check them out. I think there was a Legend of Zelda book because I have a book from... And I'm not sure if it was... Who did you mention? Was Dave? Uh, I don't know. What was, what was the name of the company? Oh, here is Dave Papel. Ah, okay. Yeah, I, <laughs> definitely not my uh, my language of choice. But um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I heard I was like I heard Dave Chappelle. Like. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but basically, I remember there was one like translated book on Kickstarter, and there was a Dark Souls book, and they had like three or four books, and the one that I chose was Legend of Zelda because I'm obsessed with Legend of Zelda. So I got their Zelda book, and it was excellent. Like, not sure exactly if, you know, if they take on other different authors, that's cool. But, um, yeah, it was interesting, though, because I, um, who did I talk? I talked to Books a Million last week and Dark Horse Comics. Because when I do these Kickstarters, you talk to weird, (laughs) weird companies, but most of them want you before you release your book. Yeah. And I'm like, well... I want control over what I publish, over what I put my name on. <laughs> yeah, I I do that just for um, yeah. just my own production sake because I, I mean I have to work by my own schedule because otherwise it's like correct. I mean I I set my own due dates because they need to be out by certain dates in certain cases. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean I do this all as a hobby on the side anyway, so like really the weekends are the only time I have to you know record podcasts and also like work on books. So I. Don't, I can't be subjected to a timeline or anything, and I move pretty fast just because I'm OCD, and I'll just sit here for like an entire twelve hours straight just working on stuff. But <laughs> yeah, I'm just I'm insane though. But I work on it little by little throughout the year, every week. So it's how you get stuff done, right? Yeah. I mean, I have a like the the last book I was working on was for uh, it was actually pitched to me by a crowdfunding publisher called Unbound. Yeah, and that was the uh, the Japanese video game obscurities book, which uh, I, on the actual Unbound website it didn't quite get there, but once it went to Kickstarter, it was uh, it was funded pretty quickly there. I remember so, when you posted the Unbound website, and I can't remember if I supported it there or Kickstarter, but like I saw it and I was like, the Unbound site's okay, but then when they took it to Kickstarter, that was a different story. Yeah, like I I had heard of them because they had previously done. Um, is that a YouTube guy, Stuart Ashens? He had put out a book that was just like bad UK titles that I had. I picked up here, and you know, so I thought I was familiar with the company. Uh, but after my book, there's been a couple of other. Uh, I guess they were starting to get into video game themed books because there's yeah. one by uh, Guru Larry that he was doing. Um, this is other author named David Craddock who does a lot of cool, uh, mostly PC stuff. Yeah, books. He did one about I think the history of Quake or uh, just first person shooters of that era. Mm-hmm. 
And I know um Larry actually told me to contact Unbound because he knows that like the the craziness with at least for me shipping internationally with these five to six pound monstrosities that I produce. Oh um, my god! <laughs> holy shit! It's like it's seriously like going to Australia seventy five dollars. Um, yeah, that that you, doesn't surprise me. Like one of the, the issues we ran into with this Kickstarter assistance Unbound is British. Mm-hmm. Um, it was they were charging I think like twenty or twenty five dollars to ship books from them, and that that mm-hmm. put out a lot of people. I'm like, well, internet sh- or international shipping is expensive. Like exactly, uh, and I don't know if you noticed, but with my hidden gaming gems one, that's actually like as we're talking, it's probably got like three or four hours left right now. Yay, <laughs> yay! Uh, <laughs> but it, the thing is, is that the funding where it's funded at's lower than my previous ones, but it's only U.S. No, oh, yeah. international back. I took it off because you don't realize Kickstarter uses the shipping at to to calculate your funding amount, and then they charge you the percentage on also the uh, shipping. So if I charge seventy five dollars for shipping to certain countries, ten percent of that, so seven bucks already off the top, is going to Kickstarter basically. Yeah, which is crazy. So it's like I lose like $10 potentially per international backer that I have to pay out of the funding amount. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's no good. So I, I just, had to ship something over to Spain and it was uh it was just a like a limited edition as a limited run game I picked up at a convention and it wasn't that big or that heavy and it was 25 bucks to send. And that was like without a tracking number the cheapest possible shipping like Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And so like that's where I I cut international shipping for the Kickstarter, but then in my store I have um in my bookstore I have a link international shippers. And so I've been selling pre-orders there because I have to. I can't do Kickstarter with international anymore because it just wasn't working and I mean this is what Kickstarter number 5 or 6 for me. Yeah. And, and it's just like learning the woes of freaking shipping and that's where like Larry Bundy told me to to contact um Unbound because yeah. he was like, "Hey, they could do your international." And I talked with somebody from Unbound last week too, and they were just like, "Well, we got to they wanted to handle the production too." And I'm like, "Well, for my older books, I can just ship them to your warehouse or whatever." <laughs> like, I don't know. Like I already have hundreds of books sitting in the warehouse right now that I can send to you like a a pallet or something. But it would be expensive. But yeah, we had um we discussed uh when we were th- thinking of ways to reduce the the shipping over America. I was like, me, you you could bulk ship them out to me, and then I can try shipping them individually out here. But we did the numbers, and it wasn't it wasn't worth it. Well, exactly, and it was um with my Super Nintendo book that I just um I just fully shipped out the definitive one. It's I was gonna get with um I don't know if you know Chris Wilkins. Uh, no. He does all the uh, – he works with, like, the Oliver Twins, and he does a bunch of different uh, books on the Commodore, and he did, like, the Fusion magazine and doing a bunch of stuff over in over in Europe. And he's like, hey, dude, I will uh, ship out your books if you can get them to me. And so I did the calculations, and it would be just as much for me to ship each book individually from my house as it would be to bulk ship him from the printing warehouse, you know, overseas to him. And yeah. like do like a split shipping. So I was like, well, I might as well just ship them for myself. Like, <laughs> <laughs> At a certain point, you just find like a uh, an airplane ticket to Europe that won't look at your luggage weight. Yeah, and real. then just like, k- kind of take them over there yourself. And then you get a European trip out of it. 
Well, exactly. It's like crazy. It's a, and it's one of those things where like I haven't been to a whole lot of European conventions, gaming conventions, just because I work all the time. Yeah. And so like, but once I start doing that, that's probably what it's going to be. Is I'm going to be bringing on a couple of baggage bags <laughs> on with with like flights. Oh yeah, we got screwed when we went over to Barcelona though, or it's to Spain. Because when we went there, it was fine, but coming back. Like they kind of just decided, okay, we need to charge you 150 euros for your one bag of baggage, and it was what? Yeah, and of course it's right at the check-in, and we we were arguing like we didn't going, we didn't have this issue. Uh, the, our ticket doesn't say that we have to pay for the check-in baggage, but they just kind of had us by <laughs> by the balls, so we just need wow. to pay like because that's like almost 200 bucks is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah 200 dollars for your one bag, like yeah. I mean, I could see maybe America charges like some kind of tax or something coming in. It's usually like twenty five, seventy five dollars, depending on the weight. Yeah, <clears throat> you would think if it's a hundred pound bag, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, let's see. It was just a whatever. Um, but crazy. actually, like as as far as the hardcore gaming one on books, a lot of my sales come in from the Europe and UK. Yeah. Um, and it definitely sort of gives the impression that uh, they value reading a little bit more. Because mm-hmm. uh, I know from from our end, like uh, I don't know if I told you this, but one of the too many games, you know, if I have the time, sometimes I'll go to see other sellers and see if they want to pick up any of my books. And <laughs> and one person was flattered that like gamers don't read. I'm like, oh man, that's so depressing. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure even, they don't. Let, let me look at your back catalog, Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> and even commiserating with some of the the other authors that made it too many games is like, yeah, just the conventions in general, they uh, they prioritize YouTubers over over authors, which oh, is kind of a bummer. It's why I wasn't there this year. It's like I moved out to Texas, and it's no longer a couple-hour drive. And I'm like, well, if we, if I they invite any East Coast one invites me out as a guest, then I'll come out. But the other issue is is that they didn't have to the last few years because I was local, so I would just yeah. kind of drive out and crash with buddies on a floor somewhere. Like that's how I did it. And now it's to the point where I have to be a guest, and they're like, <laughs> kind of get slipped yeah. in the cracks. And, it's just- yeah. <laughs> It becomes a an issue because the, the the cost of the tables is very large, and I think they're they're focused on uh, you know game sellers. They are. So uh, I mean that's why I when I go to conventions, I usually have stuff that I dug out of my closet uh, to help like subsidize uh, that sort of stuff. And lately, I've also been shipping it, uh, splitting the table with another author named Carrie Wood who works for uh, the Overstreet Company. Yeah, you did and that the last out- year too, didn't you? Yeah, I did this this year and the last year. So uh, she sells some of the books that she did and some of the other books from Overstreet. She was which, super so, cool. I remember talking with her last year. She's really nice. Yeah. Guy. I know that's what uh, Leonard Herman and Brett Weiss were at Too Many Games this past year, and I know they, they split the table over there too. Nice. Yeah, Leonard's I mean, awesome. I, he's actually doing the forward to my uh, Hidden Gaming Gems book. <laughs> yeah, I think he's going to – I'm going to uh, the Long Island – uh, Retro Expo next month, and then there's one in New Jersey, the, the video game con that you were at last year. Yeah, those are all really fun, and AVGC is growing, and yeah, I, I know last year, like I saw Leonard for the first time. It was over at the Coleco one, where there was more authors than people attending, and <laughs> <laughs> maybe I should have gotten to that one just to just to hang out with people because everything. Yeah, I saw pictures of it. It just seemed like it was nothing but emptiness. It was, and it was awesome. And, like, Tim Lepatino was there with us, too, from Chicago, like, you know, our Avatar guy. <laughs> he actually traveled. Wow. Yeah, and they brought him in. They didn't, yeah. like, like, they flew him in. And, like, Clico, they were serious about it, but it was just they had that whole social media kerfuffle that happened. 
and people just avoided the convention. But um, it was just cool just shooting the shit. And I met Leonard, and I was like, I was like, what other conventions do you go to? And he really didn't. And I'm like, well, I'm going to these. And like at AVGC, I I was starting to contact some of the convention guys for him, and they're like, well, Leonard can come if he could share a table with you. I'm like, that's fine. <laughs> Yeah. Like, hell yeah, you can. And so I got to shoot shit with Leonard at ABGC last year, and then he started to go to more and more conventions, which is awesome. Yeah, yeah. Cause I, I finally like got to meet been, him this past year. He's been writing for, what, 30 years? Like, Yeah, he wrote one of the, like, the first video game history book that, that the covered stuff from, like, the late 70s, early 80s. Exactly. I was like, well, you have to start going to conventions, man. It's like, and he he would bring, you know, the, the brown box from... <laughs> From uh, you know the the classic Odyssey brown box from Ralph Bear and like he just this is a super cool dude too and hilarious. But yeah, it's just it's one of those things where too many games unfortunately focuses straight on the YouTube community, which is cool, but that's not all there is to the to the retro gaming community. And and I think that also like uh, th- there's not many artists that show up at these things compared to like a comic book show yeah. where you have a lot of I mean I don't know how much uh, like uh, an average convention like that charges for a table but I know like you know saying four hundred bucks for a weekend that they're not going to be able to make money off of that like that's ridiculous no. no and and that's just it is like they usually at at most conventions have artist alley. Where, yeah, yeah, and and I think the stuff we do is closer to what that is. It's more like homemade uh, stuff as compared to everybody else selling old retro games. Well, exactly. We're not flipping and and profiteering. We're just selling our art, basically, or our books. So yeah, it's, it's it's absolutely that. It'd be like the same thing if we made a video game. We're selling the game that we made. It's not reselling the game. Yeah, and I mean most of the game tables at the conventions they go to multiple conventions all year round so yeah that's their business at that point but yeah it's it's very interesting and i mean like we're doing something a little bit different than everybody else out there because kind of just jumped in feet first you were, you were doing it much longer than me of course but <laughs> <laughs> i'd done it when i only had two books out because yeah. um, I mean, I when I was younger, I thought you know it'd be cool to open up a video game store, and that's one of the reasons I have a closet full of stuff that I just you know picked up in bulk on eBay or uh, got yeah. it with garage sales and stuff. But you know, I don't really want to do that. <laughs> but it's good to you know get rid of them. Well, my idea is that when I uh, retire, which from my job is about six years, <laughs> <laughs> it's coming up close actually. Um, you know, since I'm military and all. Um, so in six years when I retire, like, I think the wife wants to move out to like Tampa and I want to get like a, a little store, not a store, but like a little space where I'll have like coffee, maybe a whiskey bar or something, but coffee, um, a desk and I can sit there, work on books and like a seat man, like TV with some games. Yeah. Just like a little front for me to hang out with people, uh, sell my books. I have my books there for sale. Um, and then I can shut it down on the weekends and go to conventions. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's it. Like, and my wife wants to do like a cupcake business or something. So if, if they're next to each other, perfect. Yeah. But I would have to have somewhere to go once I'm actually retired. Cause I got to get out of the house and that's, that's the key. Cause if I sit in the house, I will literally get, um, you know, sidetracked. <laughs> <laughs> 
I know it's easy. <laughs> I, I mean, my my main job is uh, I work in Jersey City, which for me is like a almost two hour commute, oh, uh, which is long and expensive. But they're also good about letting me work from home, uh, which is good. <laughs> but it, it could also be distracting. It depends how much work I have to do. Yeah, I mean, my job out here is, is insane right now because I went from a normal normal job with the military to this one is very engaging where it's 16 hours a day, some most days. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm I'm up at like 4 a.m. Like even tomorrow, 4 a.m. till about 6 to 7 p.m. most days, and it can be later. Oh, yeah. I get home, eat some food, and pass on the couch and rinse repeat until Friday when I try to drink some coffee at night, stay awake, and work on some books. Yeah, <laughs> love it though. Uh, yeah, I mean, but the thing is that uh, it's most people don't realize that we all work, you know, normal jobs, and then do this as the passionate hobby yeah yeah <laughs> it's not exactly a great money maker no but it's fun and it is it's the one thing that i've i've been mentioning on video game bullshit on the, the main you know the cast is that i think i like that it's permanent to where when you put out the book somebody will have it forever yeah like somebody will like and people if people enjoy it it's worth doing it's out there forever and it's literally going to be enjoyed for generations to come, and it's that's really cool to me. If it, if it makes some cash, great. If it doesn't, great. I mean, I don't know if you were following online, but I had that crazy ass print error. I did, Holy and that shit. sounded terrible. Holy shit! That, like, I don't even know. It was a multi thousand dollar error. <laughs> but uh, they fixed it, right? So yes and no. Okay. <laughs> so I had a double double issue. It wasn't just the print error of the binding, because um, that that company they reprinted everything. Yeah. So, but I also had in my warehouse. I shipped them there, and then the warehouse mailed out three hundred books. Oh. And they were supposed to check them, and they didn't. Oh no. Yeah, and then they said that wasn't their problem. So uh, I'm moving warehouses, obviously. Um, I already have the print. The new print went to the new warehouse. But <laughs> but so that means um, all the ones that had errors, which I want to say was about 15 to 20% mm-hmm. had, the, had the print error. Um, that ended up, I think I did the math, it's like five or $6,000 in shipping again. Oh, geez. Mm-hmm. Um, now, and then I still had a few hundred books that I were sitting in there and I could either have them throw them in the trash. And as we just talked about, like, <laughs> do I want to throw away all of my books into the trash or yeah. pay to bo- t- pay to ship the pallet to a, a fixing a company to fix it and then ship it back. Um, so what I did was, is I paid to ship it and all that. And I think that was $1,200 just to get them fixed and shipped <sighs> in bulk. And I'm shipping them to me cause I'm going to ship them out. I'm going to take them to conventions. So there is like a few hundred books that I have that are coming to my house, which my wife will love because yeah, mm-hmm. it's going to fill up my garage. <laughs> but yeah, basically those would be the ones I take to conventions. They're all fixed though. So I'm going to have, so in the end, I'm going to end up having an extra 300 books or 400 books like extra, mm-hmm. but it put me way into the red. <laughs> yeah, that sucks. Like I have to take out a business loan, honestly, but it's. It'll be what it is, and if one of these books goes viral or something, then it'll help <laughs> recover <laughs> some of the costs. And anything yeah. that I sell, I just put it into the bank, and 
and I, I'll pay off the loan as it goes. Luckily, I'm not feeding my family with the book money, like, for real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the glory of it. But, I mean, the thing is, though, in the end, you know, it'll be it'll be fun. And I already have all the, uh, the, rep- the replacements now are getting shipped out, so that's already automated and set. Um, the new warehouse is awesome, too. It's like when anybody buys something from my Shopify store, it automatically goes to the warehouse, and they automatically ship it with my preferred method. Oh, that's cool. I don't have to do anything. Like at, Before, I used to have to manually put it in with the old warehouse, and it was, it was bad. Like, But, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see because there's always a learning curve with everything. Yeah. <laughs> it just got too big to the point where I couldn't have the books in my house anymore. It was crazy. And that's probably why you do your uh, paperbacks like you do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they they take care of all that stuff pretty easily. I mean, they're, the company has some just issues. They're a little bit uh, draconian as to how they want their layouts done. Um, yeah. And I'm, but I mean, they're good for international shipping. There's like, there's no real money that needs to be put up in front from their perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's pretty good. I mean, uh, this past week they they put one of my books on sale, but there's also you know Amazon has pretty shitty working conditions. So uh, there was kind of a, a small boycott people going on to try to do it, which is you know I totally support them. I totally understand why that they would not want to do that. But at the same time, there's people that aren't uh, you know looking to buy my books, and they're like the company is owned by Amazon, so basically they are published by Amazon, uh, ah, which kind of puts yeah. us in a in a bind. It's the same thing with the Kindle stuff. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, they are the publisher, and you know when they get so big and terrible, and people don't want to use them. I mean, again, understandable, but it affects everybody. That there's a lot of uh, customers. I guess we are. I don't know. Yeah, because I know we've we've talked at conventions and before. I mean, you were on one of the one of the live panels that we did. Um, and basically you do the whole Amazon thing and like one of these days you may have to make the switch over <laughs> and it's, it's, a I di- might. it's a different beast, man. <laughs> I was, I was thinking of, of, of trying to pitch some stuff to some publishers, but it needs to be something that I think would have like really wide appeal. Like the, the reason I operate the way I operate is just this whole thing started as like, I just wanted to write about stuff that I was playing. If people enjoyed reading it, then that was cool. But it was just mostly focused on what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And the books kind of operate on that same wavelength that, uh, <laughs> like, I just have an idea that I think is cool and just sort of focus on that. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the thing is, though, is if you go the route that I do, which is literally the crowdfunding, I mean, as long as you know your, like, what it costs to do the print runs. Which, with your style, it's cheaper than the way I do shit because mine are you know, hardcover and all that stuff. Um, when you go softcover like that, it's it's cheaper too, which is much more affordable. But as yeah. long as you know like how much things cost, you can just do the Kickstarter and then like I know people like I I met you know my current printing company through Tim Lapatino, like chatting with him online, like I'll get you in contact with people and then you could just do yeah. it like you just do it yourself and then you can do whatever layouts you want. Like that's why I do it the way I do it. Even though technically there's a lot, a much larger distribution obviously with like an Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> way larger. But I mean, that's, that's the reason why I went my way out and I haven't quite went like I talk with different companies and it's like, well, I kind of want my own control. <laughs> Because, again, like, I'm the same way where, 
you know, when I'm doing a book, I kind of want to do what I want to play or what I want to get more into. <laughs> yeah, that's what the reason is for me. The book sometimes takes so long because it's like, okay, I have a topic. There's stuff that needs to be in there, but mm-hmm. I don't actually want to do it, but I have to. Like, it's just yeah. part of the process. Like, um, well, just something just end up weird. Like the Data East book, I didn't intend on doing a whole book on Data East. <laughs> it was supposed to be like a small thing, you know, like cover a whole bunch of them more interesting games, but... And I started to play more of their stuff, and I'm like, these guys made so many strange, weird games that I have they to. I, that, that's how it ended up uh, becoming its own book. And uh, I mean, I'm not displeased with it. It turned out very well, uh, mm-hmm. but it's not something that has a whole lot of broad appeal. <laughs> so, like, I, if, if nobody bought it, I wouldn't have been too too distraught about it. Well, it's uh, it's one of those things too where the weird and obscure is fun, and like the other thing is is that you probably have people that just like to support and get all the books because they like your writing style or they're like the the stuff that you cover and you're going to cover some obscure data shit well i'm going to read about it it'd be cool yeah get enjoyment out of it at that point yeah it's 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 a tough balance to strike about whether people want to see the more popular stuff given in our style or want stuff that they've never heard of before yeah because you know talking about conventions about the sega books like volume one is all space Harrier, afterburner shinobi like the stuff people are mostly familiar with versus volume yeah. two which is all the early stuff and super obscure things which was harder to sell and of course proportionally sales are much lower but uh at the same time people are like i kind of like volume two more because there's just so many things i'd never heard of in it well and that's what i enjoy most is the stuff that you can't easily find online I mean, you say Volume 1 and Volume 2, it's just like the same thing where everybody supported my complete NES book, but then the NES Oddities, which is like twice the size and has all the obscure stuff, like, it's it moves slow, but when people see it at conventions, they go crazy about it, because they're like, holy cow, what's all this, yeah. like, Famicom, and this Famicom disc, and all these homebrew games, I didn't know there's this many homebrew games, and they go crazy over it, but like an online aspect, like people kind of only go toward the popular stuff quickly yeah it's it's different it's i guess it's just hard to market i guess is what it would be and i'm trying to to split it out because like you know i even for my own purposes like if i just want to read a book on metroid there's no such thing that exists uh so that's that's something that i kind of want to you know do for that sake even if it's you know everybody kind of knows what metroid is it would be really cool to read about the obscure aspects of metroid too yeah, I started kind of doing a. I, I wrote a nice. series on the the two D books, which were were published on the website because um, the main reason is that the two D games I can play in portable systems, which means I can play them on my commute to work. Plus, I'm, I mean, I I played them all. I just need a refresher. Well, yeah. Um, but the three D games I need to play in my computer, which are just they're also much longer. Like the Metroid Prime games are like fifteen twenty hours versus like correct four five for Super Metroid. Well, and it's one and of I those things that, that I, um, within the last couple years, was just introduced to Metroid Zero Mission because I never got it as a kid. And I'm like, holy shit, this is like the original game, but like Super Metroid. Yeah. And it blew me away. And I'm like, there's just so many different non-touched aspects. And then, of course, you could jump into some of the fan stuff, too. Like that, uh, the one that was like taken down, the another Metroid 2 remake. Oh, yeah, I did stuff. a review of that. That was really, really well done. Exactly. And then you could also, like, if you're doing just 2D on the Metroid stuff, or even, like, in a little back part, you could cover stuff like Oxium Verge and ones that were clearly inspired by Metroid. Yeah, yeah. I, I already put that. We did. A, I did a book on indie games at the yeah. end of last year on Oxium yep. Verge. I even got the guy in the cover. Oh, um, I, I have a copy of the book. 
<laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, and actually, the um, the background of episode seven is your newer book, NES Cult Classics. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's, the back, it's the background on what, where we're talking right now and where it's going to be on YouTube. It's uh, the one that was done by Thor, your your art cover that was on your yeah, show. yeah, yeah, and then it has your picture on it and all that. So, but um, but yeah, like the the obscure and weird and wild stuff is is fun, anyways. And, I mean, it's funny. It's like you did your your cult book around the same time I'm doing my re-release of my Hidden Gaming Gems book, and like everybody seems to like hit like the same little niche at the same time, which is pretty cool, actually. Yeah. Well, I'm doing the uh, the uh, the Japanese obscurity book. I actually yeah. was spending the weekend just organizing it because uh, when I had written it, it was in no particular order, and I was going to leave it up to the publisher. But I'm like, you know what? I don't know how much these guys actually know about uh, video games, so I just oh, no. I had to restructure the whole thing. Uh, and uh, you know, they just did it the manuscript in the format they wanted. So now it's finally ready. I'm going to send it off tomorrow, and it's going to take them uh, quite a while. I think that, like they they saw it as a uh, a holiday like gift book but wow. they're not going to have it ready until next year so it's not actually going to be out for another year or so Holy uh, cow. yeah even though i've i started work on it a little over a year ago and then just completed it which granted i mean it didn't take an entire year because i started and then stopped for a while and then once the kickstarter got back I'm like okay i need to finish this yeah it's craziness though that like it takes that long for distribution but i think i've when i was talking to other publishers in the u.s even they they do have like a a long time and half of that i think is to throw it in their like marketing systems in their catalogs and get it out there too, get more pre-orders I, th- I think so i mean they are they have to they design it too like that's one of the main reasons i could do this yeah is it just you know i got together all the images and, and all the stuff but they're the ones who actually uh, design it compared to the stuff that I do, but yeah, they have to do that. They gotta do the actual printing, and I know from their end, they're a UK publisher, and they're gonna they're gonna want to find an American one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so they're shopping around, or they will shop around for it. Uh, It'll be uh, so interesting to see how the layouts turn out then, because you don't have the direct control. We'll see if it's like comparable to what you normally do. I like the mock-ups that they did, um, and I've sort of, you know, I had to divide the pictures in. Okay, these are the ones that you should probably prioritize. I mean, they're going to be giving me some uh, mock-ups through the process, they told me, so that I could tell them, like, this is... Um, I mean, I'm going to trust their judgment as far as layouts more, but as far as what sort of pictures to use and what are the coolest-looking ones. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really, really interesting, too. Like, when you when you trust others and... <laughs> with your, yeah, with after having idea. control over yourself for so long, be like, and let somebody else do it, which is both bad and good, because you don't need to worry about it, but you're like very particular <laughs> like I, I don't want them to screw up anything and i'm very ocd so that's like my nightmare right there <laughs> yeah yeah as <laughs> so i don't know if i could ever have an actual traditional publisher maybe but because <laughs> the thing is is most of those guys have like degrees and you know all that so they they should <laughs> they should know <laughs> yeah but if they don't have the retro gaming background like it's they're going to miss certain cool stuff that we would throw in there, little hints and shout outs. And yeah. And I know, um, you also have the, the one that Rob's working on with you, right? The horror. Oh yeah. The, the retro horror. And that is, that's so, almost done. Cause he, he's, uh, we, we had articles on Splatterhouse and ghosts and goblins, but, uh, we decided to completely redo those. And, and same with thing with monster party. Uh, yeah. we, he redid that one too. 
Uh, oh, that was also to take care of because they found the uh, prototype for the Japanese version. It was unreleased, and there was a yep. lot of changes. There was a lot, yeah. So he documented all those. And as far as my angle is, um, I'm doing a lot of early horror stuff, like just to see how how the horror genre had kind of evolved through the mm-hmm. 80s and 90s. Like Rob wrote one for Haunted House, the uh, the Atari 2600 game. Yeah, that's but I had also commissioned an article for a game called Project Firestart which was a, a Commodore 64 game that was kind of known to be one of the, the early um, computer horror games. I did one for The Lurking Horror, which was an Infocom text adventure, which I had, I had played when I was a kid but didn't really get because uh, I didn't know what H.P. Lovecraft was because that was pretty much what the game's channeling. Yeah. And then uh, Sweet Home, the, the Capcom Famicom, Famicom game, which yeah. everybody I think kind of knows about, but it'd be weird not to feature um but one of the other ones that i need to do is the um there's a company called Horrorsoft, and they put out a couple of adventure slash rpgs featuring elvira um mm, yeah there, there's the, a few the games themselves are kind of excruciating but they for like early 90s games they have really good visual design uh and they have like really they have a lot of death scenes which is sort of common there's uh, quite a few games. commodore 64 horror games that came out too that I, yeah. I played growing up that were based on like obscure B movies and like and they were only released in Europe and like Zombie for example like <laughs> Z-O-M-B-I like <laughs> oh yeah that's the one that Ubisoft did didn't they that they yep. turned into Zombie U yep oh no no I'm saying Commodore 64 oh yeah but it was originally like a uh, a PC game yeah and then like uh, they sort of like remade it yeah, it's, it's a really, like, there's some crazy, obscure, really fun, like, the was it the Bad Blood on Commodore? There's, like, so oh, many yeah. different ones, man. It's that, uh, like, uh, it's an RPG. Somebody just wrote an article about it that I got to post up uh, in a couple months. Oh, really? Yeah, that's cool. I got to read that one, then. Because, yeah, because that was the classics that I played as a kid, because for some reason, the, um... The bootleg scene on the Commodore 64 back in the the 80s was was booming, and my brother was like all over it. And we would constantly have like essentially burned games on disc. That we would oh play. yeah, uh, like uh, I knew a kid that had a Commodore, and again, all this stuff was was copied. Mm-hmm. Uh, even um, like I had an Atari 400, and we had a couple of games my dad had bought, but a lot of them were things that he had just copied from friends. That's just how uh, people got their stuff. It was like the tape trading back in the day is the same thing. And yeah. I don't even know how they were able to, to get those like in such an abundance because, I mean, we have a lot of we had a lot of them. And I don't know how that worked. It, that would be the interesting aspect to know the history on how they distributed because that's before the Internet, obviously. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it was all like everybody kind of knew that everybody copied that sort of stuff. I think it was just like friends of friends and just kind of filtered through that way because that's how my dad my dad do somebody somehow from maybe his job or something that uh he just copied everything from that there. It's crazy though, right? Like, <laughs> like Oh yeah, piracy was everywhere. And I mean my brother was in high school, so like <laughs> it wasn't like he was working or anything. Like and we're in like a podunk town in Cedar Lake, Indiana, middle of the cornfields, like <laughs> And you're still the, able to get Commodore stuff, how yeah. How the hell did we get Commodore stuff and like all over I have no idea. And like that would just that's the interesting part. Like and as I continue throughout the years of writing my own video game memoirs, because I'm doing that because Rob, you know, Strangman was like, you got to do it. You got to write out your story. Um, mm. As I write that out, that's the shit I want to figure out. Cause yeah, those are interesting stories to me. 
like all right i'm gonna have to get going soon just because we need to start our day oh no issues kurt thanks for uh for coming on the cast um so where can people find you that are listening kurt uh, HardcoreGaming101.net for my yeah. website. Uh, Twitter is HD underscore 101. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, those are pretty much the main spots. And you can find all his books on Amazon. So. Yeah, just type in Hardcore Gaming 101. They all pop up. Exactly. Yeah, because I mean, whether or not they're on sale, though, depends. But, you know. Yeah, they, they're kind of up to Amazon whims. They, they're the ones who pick it. <laughs> yeah, so your, your one of your newest books is what? The NES Cult Classics? Uh, you know, that's, that's the latest one. The the retro horror game book will be ready for Halloween. And NES Cult Classics, like that's one that I haven't gotten yet. Cause typically, like we would see each other on the East Coast, and we would um, buy yeah, I'd hook you up with a cup. Yeah, and I'd we we get each other's books, and so like um, yeah, what's the big sell on the NES Cult Classics? I see the picture. I see the games that are involved in it. Like I I see three eyed the three eyed beast man. Oh I yeah, see Gremlins too. <laughs> I see. <laughs> The main goal was to um, the, the sort of be like known as like the BNC level Nintendo games from developers that weren't uh, Nintendo or Capcom or Konami. Um, and they may not even been like this is a lot of one of the main developers we focused on was Natsume, who didn't didn't always have the own their own publisher. Yeah. Um, but if you play them like the, their games are all pretty similar. So Natsume Sunsoft, they, they were their own publisher. So you sort of like see the connections between Blaster Master and uh Journey to Silius and Gimmick and all that sort of stuff. Uh, there's some other games from like uh, KID was another game company that put out uh, like GI Joe and uh, Low G Man and Kickmaster. Yep. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff like that. There's some other tales from Jalico, like uh, Wampum uh, was stuck in there. Totally rad. Uh, there's a bunch of Japanese only games which are again not 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 the cream of the crop, but some interesting titles that that are worth checking out. Well, exactly, and it's a really cool-looking book. I'm definitely looking forward to checking it out in the future, man. Well, thanks for coming on, Kurt. Hopefully we'll get to uh, chat again soon. Alrighty, thank you very much for having me.